Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Brighter Lens. pleasure of chatting with Linda Goldstein Knowlton, an Emmy-nominated filmmaker who works in both documentary and scripted feature films, as well as in television. She has quite the impressive resume. She directed and produced Women in Hollywood, one of the six one-hour documentaries for the Emmy-nominated PBS Makers, Women Who Make America series. Prior to that, she produced Code Black, which was the best documentary winner at LA Film Festival and the basis for the new CBS one-hour drama of the same name. Before that, she directed and produced Somewhere Between, which won the Sundance Channel Audience Award at the Hot Docs Film Festival and was released theatrically all over the US. She also co-directed The World According to Sesame Street, which debuted at the 2006 Sundance Film Festival in completion and aired nationally on PBS. Linda started her career producing feature films, including the award-winning Whale Rider and The Shipping News. Today, though, we had the pleasure of chatting with Linda about her most recent documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. The film follows the first troop of radical monarchs, an alternative to the scout movement for girls of color, aged 8 through 13, for over three years until they graduate from the program. The film also documents the co-founders, Ana Yvette Martinez and Marilyn Hollenquest, who struggle to respond to the needs of communities across the U.S. to grow the organization after the viral explosion of interest in the troops' mission to create and inspire a new generation of social justice activists. This inspiring film is available to stream now on PBS until August 19th. Enjoy! Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really happy to talk with you. So glad to be here with you. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your path to becoming a filmmaker? Absolutely. Um, I have been a filmmaker for about 150-ish years, and um, I started in scripted film. So probably the, the film that you would know most is Whale Rider. Um, so I worked in scripted films for probably about 10, 15 years. And then I switched over to documentary primarily. I, I do have a, a project or two that's scripted, but really um, moved into directing and producing documentaries with The World According to Sesame Street, which was the first documentary uh, I worked on. I co-directed that with another Linda, Linda Hawkins-Costigan. And, um, and from there, I just really... I love the process. I love that, honestly, that you have more control in, in documentary to a certain extent. Uh, to a certain extent. So um, I really appreciate that. I love real people. I also love actors. I'm married to one. Um, however, I just felt that the, the intimacy and the accessibility and the stories that you can tell through documentary and also that it can happen faster um, really, really appealed to me. So. Uh, Whale Rider was involved with that for 13 years. Um, other films that I made, The Shipping News was, I don't know, nine. Uh, Crazy in Alabama was seven. So um, I needed to be making, I needed to be able to uh, find a way to empower myself to make things happen faster. So I did that 
for a long time. I've been directing and producing documentaries since 2003, however long that is. And um, yeah, and uh, I, I also, my, just my little story that you can use or not use, but I, when I went to college, I was going to be an English major because I love storytelling. And I took literature, literature, like, ooh, I went branched out and took a drama class. And then I took more literature classes. And my oldest brother called me, he's eight years older than me, and he said, what are you taking? And I said, that litany of classes. And he said, no science. And I said, no, I hate labs. And he said, oh, there's got to be one class that doesn't require a lab. So I went through the whole course catalog. The only class that didn't require a lab was introduction to neuroscience. And by coincidence, he's a neuroscientist. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. I fell in love kind of with the professor, but really with the class and the, and the subject. He was really cute um, and super dynamic. Anyway, um, so I became a neuroscience major and I went down that path and until I realized I wasn't going to go to medical school. What am I going to do with this degree? And uh, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. at a time where everyone was volunteering for campaigns after I, after I finished school. And I couldn't afford to volunteer for a campaign. I've always been very politically active, but I, you know, just out of college, needed a job. And I answered an ad to be a secretary at the American Film Institute. That's how long ago this was. And so when I got there and I got the job and I, you know, I was like, I like movies. What the hell? So I, I, you know, enmeshed myself in, in watching films and, and everything that was going on at AFI. And I was like, oh, I have come full circle. This is literature. It is big. It is moving on a screen, but is storytelling. And that's what I, that's what I loved about reading. That's what, you know, was, was the storytelling aspect of it. And that was the light bulb that went off. And from there, I started into the film, working my way to try to tell stories in film. Cool. Can you tell us about your, your most recent documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs? I, I can, actually. <laughs> Yay. I want to. Um, so We Are the Radical Monarchs uh, is a documentary we just premiered on POV on PBS uh, just this last week. And we are streaming there through August 19th for free. Love PBS. No barrier to entry for anybody. Um, and uh, it all started, I read an article online in The Guardian in, in January of 2015 that was a, basically that is this the radical brownies? Is this the future of girl troops? Um, at the time, this, this group, they had formed just a few months before, and they had called themselves Radical Brownies in the beginning because they're an alternative girl troop for young girls of color. And that's a great name. So, um, they, so their mission is social justice, and they earn badges for issues of social justice, which also includes, so it's all very age-appropriate, and it also, the idea of the group is to center the experiences of young girls of color. So the group is for girls uh, and female identified uh, people ages eight to 13. And they, they, it's a holistic look at what that experience is to be a young girl of color. So in the radical bodies unit, for example, they learn consent, they, um, they learn self-defense, and they also, it's about accepting who you are and how you look. They really look holistically at the experience of young girls of color at this age 
in a variety of ways, self-defense, consent, fativism, and uh, disability justice. So, and all of that is looking, is taking it at an age appropriate way for them to look at themselves, to see themselves reflected, representation matters, um, and to understand that no matter how you look, you're beautiful, right? And that you may not see yourself reflected in media. Um, that doesn't mean that you are not perfect the way you are, you know? So um, it, it teaches this very holistic idea and it's all very, um, action and you know radical base it's not um it's not just a uh, about philanthropy it's about making change and learning the steps at an age-appropriate way what's going on in your community and and how to how to change it and i i thought it was um just uh such a good reminder sometimes of the the questions that the girls themselves asked of these subjects i was really blown away by just how much I think we forget as adults how much children take in and how much they really do understand about the world and how um, they can ask those really big questions and say why is this happening and they want to know and having those discussions and seeing that in this film just um, was such a good reminder of of the importance of that and of like what the media is telling children and everybody versus like how yeah coming around and having the actual conversations about what we're being told versus what is the truth um i was just really it's a, it's a true testament to Yvette and marilyn the co-founders of the radical monarchs they have so much experience in in teaching and curriculum building and for them to be able to know that it's about asking the girls right what did they know like i remember my daughter we were driving around i can't remember how old she was but she was pretty little and there was a giant uh billboard in la for transparent or among other things i mean aside from like wildly inappropriate billboards <laughs> that are in, that are in la and you know it's not like they the kids don't see and they're like what is it what you know and so um and they hear us talking, we think that they're in the other room doing their own thing, and they've just got giant ears, they're taking it all in. Um, and what Anna, Yvette, and Marilyn do, because they know that it's, that this idea of adulting, right, of, of, of grown-ups just like talking at kids, thinking, oh, that's how, that's how I'm gonna clean everything, so I'm just gonna get it out there and just tell them. Well, A, they're not, it's not a great way for them to take it in. It's what, what do you know? What do you wanna know? What are, what are, how are kids talking about X issue at school or whatever? And to use that to meet them where they are. That's what it's really about. I mean, they've, everything that I've gotten from them, I feel like has made me uh, a better parent anyway. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, and so much of um, documentary filmmaking is about relationships, I think, with the subjects. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your relationships with both the troop leaders and um, the radical monarchs themselves. Well, you know, in the in the beginning, uh, I my idea that I pitched to them was we're going to do a year in the life because what drew me in after reading this article, aside from their mission statement and their backgrounds and what they were doing with this organization, I really thought. Uh, because what ended up happening was they they started this group for 12 girls in Oakland and they ended up getting all of this attention in the press when they marched in the first Black Lives Matter march in Oakland, which is why I saw this article. 
cetera, et cetera. So I, what was most interesting to me was here are these two women who have very full-time jobs. They have families. They've started this group, this small, this small group that they knew was needed, um, but still like this small group. And they were tapped on the shoulder to say, hey, no, we want you to start a movement. Because after they got that press, they got requests from over 200 cities across the U.S. and, I don't know, 10 or 15 other countries for troops. So I thought, what we, we don't often see this. Like, we see movements once they've started, right? You don't get the behind the scenes. How does this work? What is happening? Who are the people that are, that are bringing this to fruition under really difficult circumstances? Um, right? Movements are started because there are difficult circumstances. So um, that's what I pitched to them. And we filmed for three and a half years. So, uh, you know, in the beginning, I mean, Marilyn was very interested in having their work documented. So that's what was appealing to her. Because as she said, that the work of women of color is most often invisible. And so she wanted their work documented. Um, and that made sense. And she's a bit of an introvert. She, I think she's the first to say. She says it in the film, maybe, too. Um, and so in the beginning, she's like, oh, when does it again? Like, you know, what's happening here? And, um, and, uh, and then by the end, you know, I mean, as we went along and as we went along and, and I explained to them, there's just too much story. And what I found is it's not just enough in the year of the life that there is this, and this is the joy of, and the scary part of documentary is you can't kind of prescribe the, you can't prescribe the structure or what the story is going to be. You can ask questions. You can say, Hey, I think it's going to be this. I want to follow these fishing lines. Um, and you have to be open to all the surprises. So they understood that we were going to be there for the long haul. And the girls in the beginning were like, this is weird. Although not entirely weird because they grew up in this era of, you know, people recording things and phones and all this stuff. Um, so, the, you know, it was a little bit weird at first. And then, and then I would hear, cause I, you know, we d didn't film every single time they got together. I would hear from Anna Yvette saying the girls were like, when's Linda coming back? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it's been, and it's been amazing to watch them grow over this whole time. I mean, we started over five years ago and we're still, you know, in community. So it's really nice. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, documenting this story made you a better parent. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the intersection of being a mother and directing this film and how that's all tied together. That seems really fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just learned about, I mean, you know, the clear example that makes Anna and Marilyn laugh all the time too, is that you know, at the time, I didn't understand how to, um, you know, explain the gender spectrum to my daughter. You know, it just wasn't something of my generation, whatever, that was really talked about. It wasn't explained to me until I was an adult. I mean, I didn't understand it and, and look for the answers, right? And so, and the specifics of the pride unit and, and talking about the gender spectrum, um, also how they did that illuminated so much to me about how to unpack things for my daughter. And um, in general, just about a lot of big things happening in the world. So I learned a lot about adulting from, <laughs> from them. 
Um, and yeah, I, I feel like the intersection of being a parent, I mean, it's hard to be away from my family and my daughter. However, I also feel like it's modeling that there's something that I'm passionate about, that this is a way that I interact with the world, that I'm uh, telling stories that matter to me, and that, you know, that this is something that women do. So it gives me that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, that just makes me think of how um, at the end of the film, when they go to the Capitol building and they show all the girls, you know, they meet with all these people and especially the women um, in government and Congress and say like, yeah, you can do this too. And, and gosh, that little girl, when she, when she's leaving and she's like, I'm going to run this place. That was, that was just such a great moment. That was so fun. Um, but so powerful as well, you know? Yeah. Amia, um, I mean, she's either going to be president or we're all going to be looking <laughs> for her. She's extraordinary. I mean, they're all, they're all extraordinary. Um, she just, we just happened to catch that, <laughs> that great moment. And then there's also, there was another monarch who, um, uh, we unfortunately couldn't put this piece in the film, but when we were doing those same interviews at the end of Sacramento, she had been very, she'd been very shy during all of the filming up until then, I would say, and reminds me a lot of my daughter who's also shy. So I have a lot of compassion, empathy for her. Um, but in, in her interview saying, you know, what did you take from this and what do you think? And she just looked up and looked me right in the eye and said, I'm going to be governor of California. And I'm like, you know, the tears coming in my eye. I'm turning around looking at that. And she went on to run for class president and won. And she went to high school. Um, she last summer when we were doing film festivals, there was one weekend where there were three festivals at the same time. So Ana Yvette and Lupita went to Toronto. Um, Navia and her mom Jessica went to Seattle. I went someplace that I don't remember. Um, and Navia did all the. Uh, she just did the Q and A's herself. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Like, wow. So to see that, to see her growth, so powerful, and to know that while as parents you know her mom is an amazing mom and but it, it's it, it takes input from it's a village i mean sorry to use the old thing but um it's it's that fierce sisterhood that Anna Yvette and marilyn are all about instilling and as they say step into their brilliance they're already brilliant right it's about giving them the safe space and support to be the, their full authentic selves Love that. Um, a little bit of a nitty gritty question. You mentioned um, your love for PBS and that there's no barrier to people just streaming on it. And uh, we're just curious about like you've worked with PBS in, in the past and curious about that collaboration and partnership. Was this documentary always going to um, come to PBS? How did that work? It's yeah, it's cool that it can be, you know, it can reach so many people. Right. Um Yes. Uh, uh, no, actually, it wasn't always gonna, it wasn't always going to go to PBS. We made this film. Um, we just made this film all along. Uh, it's kind of scrappy. And uh, and then we premiered at South by Southwest last year. And that's where um, I was first approached by 
Chris White at PBS, at POV. Um, and, and we, you know, there were conversations with a variety of people and what it really came down to was that organically for what this story is, and I always kind of had this in my head of like, yes, this would be perfect for PBS um, because it's available to everyone. Um, so it just all made sense. It all kind of came together. So it was by, by crazy coincidence that I had worked with PBS in the past and um, uh, that we came together to do, to do this again. So it's been great. We would love to hear a little bit about uh, your collaboration with Katie Flint and your production company, Ladylike Films, if you could tell us about that. Absolutely. Katie Flint is like, uh, she's, she's the one who's actually texting me right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so funny. Um, we first met, she was an assistant editor to our, uh, our genius editor, Kate Amond, on my first film on world, The World According to Sesame Street. And that's where I first met Katie. And we just clicked in a way and, um, and she's so talented and not in a cliche way, but she's really, really, really talented and thoughtful. And we're a very good um, kind of yin, yin yang. I mean, there's a lot that we overlap in terms of storytelling, but then she just brings this whole other perspective that's fantastic that, that makes our films you know, rise higher. So we, um, so after that, she edited Somewhere Between, which was, that was the first time that her like full, she was the editor. And again, that was a crazy film over many years. And in terms of tons of footage that was coming from, I mean, she, I, I owe her a tiara, I think, <laughs> or something. Um, I mean, that was a, that was so much to handle because I'm, traveling all over the country, all around the world, following this story and just like sending home footage, you know, and she just, she really, um, I don't know, she did magic. So that just really cemented our relationship and we've worked together ever since. And we just have a very um, similar lens on the world in terms of wanting to focus on girls and women and telling stories and yeah. So, and she's really, you know, I'm obviously over all this time, we're really, really close friends, even though she doesn't live in LA anymore, which makes me sad. But she also lives a mile away from my brother in Northern California, which is great and weird. So <laughs> I do get to see her. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and over the course of, of making We Are the Radical Monarchs over three and a half years, she got pregnant and had a baby. I had breast cancer and did surgeries and treatments. And we just, you know, I think it's a testament to our, our friendship and our dedication and our, the fact that we're bananas, that we, <laughs> that we pulled it all off together. So, and of course we have an amazing, amazing team that we work with too. I mean, that's, uh, goes without saying, but I'm going to say it because it needs to be said is that we had a team of primarily women who, you know, just, just fantastic at what they do and of being part of a team and collaborating. And that's what I love about filmmaking. It's a collaborative art. I, you know, if I don't want to collaborate with people, I'd go sit in a room and write um, or paint or, and no, like great for, thank God that people do that. But for me, it's about the collaborative 
about the collaborative effort and you know just shout out to Claire Major, our DP, Giselle Contreras, who she gets like the MVP for the <laughs> she was an assistant editor, additional camera, field producer, I don't know, something else I'm forgetting. And Suze Curtis, they they tie for the MVP. Suze like writing she's doing all our social media right now because i don't understand i'm terrible at it and um and she both of them also associate producers and just made everything happen all the time they just they had my back they had our backs when we're going through our life things and uh we couldn't have made the film without them wow that's really beautiful thanks for sharing we're, we're here for the collaborative friendship so yeah <laughs> Well, we end every interview with a lightning round. It's called three, two, one action. So we'll start with three, your favorite or most influential film. Harold and Maude, Fail Rider. Sorry, just gotta be honest. Nikki Caro is a genius. Can't not say that. Number two, dream person you would like to work with. Michaela Cole. Hello, call me. You don't need to call me. I would love to work with her. <laughs> so good um one uh best advice you've received the best advice i've gotten actually is to prepare 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 because we need to be prepared as much as we can uh in general because then in one in documentary if you have prepared as much as you possibly can then you are open and available to all the surprises and can pivot and um you're just you're free so you're, you're free to be open to the creative process of whatever's happening in that moment the other reason to be that we need to prepare 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 is because we're women and because uh we need to get hot you know we need to be part of the decision making process we need to uh, have more uh, we need to create a more opportunities. We need we need to have people, decision makers, not have excuses of why we're not the right person or or whatever. Is that if we come in as prepared as humanly possible, then uh, we give people fewer excuses to not hire us. Love that. And action. Where can people follow you and We Are the Radical Monarchs on social media? And how can people watch the documentary on PBS? Uh, people can watch the documentary at the PBS app or the POV app. And uh, it is available to stream through August 19th. So watch it, tell your friends, send it all out. Uh, you can follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at rad monarchs doc all one word facebook is we are the radical monarchs movie you just type it in and facebook will pop up and um we have our website we are the radical monarchs movie.com very long name why we did that who could say um but if you, again if you type it in it'll come up and uh yes so follow us and then most importantly follow the radical monarchs um, and if you know people that can donate to them so they can continue doing their work, please do that. If you can do it, fantastic. Um, if, you, if you are inspired and empowered and excited about what you see in the film, that's all them and they need all the help and support that they can get financially so that they can scale to meet the needs that they want to meet. Wow. Cool. 
Thanks for talking with us, Linda. It was really, it was such a joy. Thank you. You too. This was really fun. Thanks. You can find us at abrighterlens.com and at abrighterlens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at abrighterlens at gmail.com. You can download the show wherever you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were designed by Meg Cafferty. Our associate producer is Elise Welch. A Brighter Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell. 